However, standing by right now is the one and the only, Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? If they would do a movie about your life, who would you want to play your part? <laughs> uh, well, George Clooney, of course. <laughs> who else could it be? Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Primetime with Sean Mooney. I hope you all had a tremendous week. Uh, Coming off a great episode with the premier announcer for the WWE, Corey Graves. And folks, love him or hate him. Uh, People want to hear what he has to say. Uh, The episode with Corey is one of the most listened to episodes we've ever had. It's right up there uh, with uh, some of the best. And as I mentioned in the podcast, he's part of a new generation of performers in the WWE and in professional wrestling. You know, people who are well tuned in to the social media networks out there and know how to use it to their full advantage. And Corey knows how to stir it up in front of a camera and uh, with his thumbs as well, because it doesn't seem to matter what he says, it stirs a reaction. And folks, in wrestling, uh, you want to be loved or hated. The last thing you want is for people to just not care, because if that is the case, you are dead. And boy, do people care about what Corey Graves has to say. And what an interesting story he is. Uh, He faced a lot of adversity adversity along the way, as as, uh, you heard. And uh, I mean, at one time he was a 911 dispatcher. I remember those damn clowns. Uh, (laughs) But really, and as we talked about, it probably helped prepare him for... uh, uh, what he ended up doing in, in his life. Uh, he probably didn't realize it at the time. So take that to heart, folks. Uh, whatever you're doing out there, you know, you, you gain something that you may use down the road. Uh, you know, and then he goes on and uh, works his ass off. He reaches a peak in professional wrestling and then it's all taken away from him. And then he has to uh, reinvent himself all over again. And he said, you know, I just, I was trying to do anything. I just wanted to stay basically in the game. And he's, you know, hanging out with Dusty Rhodes and just really didn't have any idea. Commentary wasn't really in his mind or uh, him thinking that, yeah, I might be good at this. But, you know, he just kept uh, putting it out there. And uh, he really has become uh, one of the the best announcers out there, I think. And, uh, you know, he is definitely a great lesson to all trying to achieve their dreams. And I love what he's doing right now. He is one of my favorite people in the world of professional wrestling. One of my favorite people out there. And if you haven't checked out the episode yet, please do so. It is a must listen. Let's get to this week's episode with Jerry Lynn. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, Jerry Lynn may not have been the biggest individual to ever step into the ring, but his determination and work ethic, as well as his athletic skills, would take him to some of the greatest professional wrestling organizations over a career that has spanned 
more than three decades. He's uh, still working in the business. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us on Primetime. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, I, I, I have to wonder, because when all you have to say is Jerry Lynn, and everybody knows uh, who you are. But uh, you had I other gifts. I don't gift- know. A lot of I'm sorry. A lot of times I get who. (laughs) Well, so do I. That's my uh, Sean Mooney who, but that's uh, Bobby Heenan who who coined that one. But uh, no, that's not, I know that isn't the case in in the world of professional wrestling, Jerry, but you had, you did have some other gimmicks along the way. And I think just because they were awful, like like Golgotha cross, is that really one of the gimmicks you had? It was called, it was only a one-time thing for, I was in a mask man tournament for Michinoku Pro over in Japan. Yeah. yeah. And they had the mask they wanted me to wear and it was called Gorgota Cross. And yeah. and that was it. That's the yeah. only time I wore it was during that tournament. And I ended up losing the mask to uh, Grand Naniwa in a mask versus mask match near the end of the tournament. Yeah. And, and uh, was there a really a Jerry the Ram? No, no. What happened... <laughs> <laughs> what happened there was a friend of mine in uh, Denver called me up and he asked if uh, if he got the outfits made, if I would do a team Ram Jam with him. Yeah. So I think it was on a just uh, uh, just a for, I don't know, it was a show that was just for fun, kind of. It was just where the whole crew kind of dresses up in different weird, wacky gimmicks. So we did the team Ram Jam and I was Jerry the Ram and he was Grimmy Jam and I still have the outfit, and I used it one more time in Austin, Texas, right around uh, Anarchy Championship Wrestling's uh, Halloween show. So I wore yeah. that because everyone kind of had fun and dressed up in different gimmicks for their Halloween show. Yeah. Well, people remember, I know also Mr. JL and uh, your days at the WCW, and we w- we'll talk about that. But, I mean, Jerry Lynn worked pretty damn well for you over all these years. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that, uh, for the most part, you stuck with that. That was a. I. That's a good choice. I could never, I could never think of a weird, wacky gimmick or a yeah. showbiz name. So I just used my name, I guess. Yeah. Well, it uh, it, it worked. Um, <laughs> you know, you're you're from Minnesota originally, correct? And uh, correct. It's it's just amazing. I, I it, it seems like every guest I have on, and we have this wide range of guests from you know all walks of life, but so many have ties to Minnesota. And uh, we just had uh, uh, Warlord on, and of course he's oh, from yeah. Minnesota. What is mm-hmm. it about that state in professional wrestling? I think just because of the history there, because yeah. the AWA had been right. there for so long, and uh, a lot of wrestlers, a lot of great wrestlers, have come out of there. Yeah, I mean, you think of, I mean, Vern Gagne, and uh, of course, we've we've heard the tales of, of Robbinsdale High and uh, a few others from Henry, I think, in that area. Um, did you know a lot about these guys then? I mean, you're not that far off in age with them, but was there kind of a legend about that group uh, early on, even when you were, were growing up in uh, in that area? I mean, I, I think you're from Minneapolis, so they, those guys must have, uh, people must have known about them. Well, I really didn't know about them till I broke into the business. Then I realized yeah. everyone was nuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But did and, you uh, know Joe and, and Mike and uh, Hegstrand and uh, you know Rick Rude and all these guys, or, or did you meet them later on? Later on, and I, yeah. I didn't realize, because when I was young, I mean, when I turned of age to drink 
in Minneapolis, you, you only had to be 19 and Wisconsin mm-hmm. was 18. Uh-huh. Anyway, I never, I went to a bar one time with some friends after work called grandma bees. Yep. And I remember seeing a guy, a, the bouncer had like the largest arms I've ever seen in my life. And yeah. I didn't, and this was years before I got in the business because I didn't break in until I was 25 and I was probably yeah. about 19 or 20 at the time. And I didn't realize till later, years later, that it was Hawk who was bouncing at the bar. Wow. Yeah. But I, I'll never forget seeing how big his arms were. They were bigger than my thighs. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine but, they ever had a fight in that place, considering the bouncers that they had between Joe Laurinaitis and, you know, <laughs> these guys were just giant monsters. And a, and a bunch of them worked at Grandma Bees. That's a very, very famous spot as far as, you know, how many of those guys uh, either worked there or hung out there. Yeah, there. I I'd heard you know later on that Hawk and Animal both worked there, and I don't yeah. know who else. But oh yeah, it was it was a lot of the guys. You know, it was a tight knit circle back then. Yeah. So, uh, but growing up there, so how did you get involved in wrestling? Uh, was it something? I mean, you were a, a, a fan as a kid, and I know you weren't big uh, in stature. I mean, you weren't. You didn't weigh a lot. I think I uh, heard you in one interview talking. You weighed about one hundred and fifty pounds. I think. Um, when you got out of high school or or in that area, I mean, you weren't a a big kid at all. Oh, no, no. When I was my senior year in high school, I was a hundred and I was wrestling in the 132 pound division. Wow. And that was a senior. Yeah. And, you know, after, after school, I, you know, started work. I, I kept on working out a little bit and then I kind of quit and I'd, uh, I'd played a few seasons of adult recreational soccer and stuff. So I always kept, you know, physically active and stuff. But a friend of mine started dating a wrestler and uh, he did a Russian gimmick in the AWA and his name was Soldat Ustinov. Mm-hmm. And so we went to go watch him wrestle on a, I, I don't, it was, a, I think it was an indie show at this, the Belray Ballroom. in I think it was in Fridley. Mm-hmm. And so I met him after the show and told him, you know, I, I was a huge wrestling fan. I grew up watching it. And he said, well, why don't you try it? And I'm thinking to myself, I told him, I said, there's no way I'm too small. And he says, well, no, they'll match up, match you up with guys your size. Yeah, right. They do. But uh, he he introduced me to Ed Sharkey and I went down and met him at his training camp at the time. And, and I knew I wasn't ready. And I kind of had a feeling that Eddie was just after my money. Cause I was only 155 pounds, probably soaking wet. So mm-hmm. I just put it on the back burner and I thought, well, I'll just start working out again. And maybe in a couple of years, if I think, you know, if I'm ready, I'll try for it then. So a couple of years later, I was actually laying telephone cable underground for a job. And, a a guy I was working with, we would go to the gym and work out together. His name was Todd Becker. And he found out about Brad Ringen's camp. And he told me, he says, Brad's throwing a camp together at the last minute. He said he's uh, given a big discount. So you want to try it? And I said, sure. So took out a loan and went to Brad's camp. And that's how it all started. Oh, so were you a, were you a good amateur? You, you mentioned you, you wrestled. Did you have uh, you know, some, of the, some success in that? Uh, and where did the basis of you thinking that you know, maybe you could do this? Where did that come from? Um, well, I had done a few sports. I had done gymnastics, basketball, soccer, mm-hmm. and track. And I thought, well, I'll, I, I kind of got recruited to try wrestling. So and uh, so I tried it, and I ended up 
my is I only wrestled my senior year in high school, and I ended up winning a state and a national and a national invitational tournament. Wow! So, yeah, I, after, I, I mean, just that a, one year, you just picked it up, and then you were that successful in one one year. Well, I didn't know a lot of moves or anything, but I think I just attributed it to all my balance from gymnastics, and even uh-huh. my coach was shocked. Uh-huh. And my coach was married, and uh, actually had help from a couple other great wrestlers. The Hayeswinkles were uh, twin brothers who were medalists in the Olympic Games in Greco-Roman. And then they had a younger brother who helped out with our team. And so, but I didn't know a lot of moves, but I could just kind of sense when someone was a little off balance and I could just kind of flip over and end up on top of them. My coach was even puzzled by it. He says, it looks like you're about to be taken down and somehow you end up on top of them. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, But so that, and then I went, tried to go to an Oka Ramsey community college and join the wrestling team. And then I was just messing around with some friends and I ended up separating my shoulder and that was the end of my amateur career. But that was early on. So years later, you know, I just thought, well, we'll give pro wrestling a shot. Well, and this was, we're talking, I guess, mid eighties when I get, you probably started to get serious about it. Uh, were you seeing, you know, what was going on, of course, at the time with the WWF and and some of the success of these these other organizations that uh, you thought that it it might be a, a career where you could actually make a living? I mean, what what was it that you were seeing going on in the in the world of professional wrestling at that time? Well, in the probably in the mid '80s is when we finally got cable, and then you could see every territory around the country. You could see Portland, you know, Florida, Georgia, continental, mid-south, the world-class with the Von Erich Freebird feud. I mean, every territory was hot, and I was loving it because, you know, all these all these years growing up, all I, all I knew of was the AWA. Yeah. And so it was exciting to be able to see all this other stuff. And it was wrestlers that you would see in the wrestling magazines. Right. But uh, when I broke in, I didn't have any aspirations of, you know, I didn't right away think i'm going to make a living at this i'm going to be a big superstar and i'm going to main event mania or nothing i just you know you got to start out looking at it as a hobby and well and you don't want to it, you know set your goals too high right right and, and but it seemed like you made a good choice uh going with with brad uh Reinigan. and uh i mean here he was an olympic wrestler uh with great success i mean he was just quite a, a greco-roman uh, wrestler at the time and he had uh, this school uh, you decided not to go with Sharky because I guess you saw that uh, it really was just a wrestling school and he he was trying to make a living as well. But uh, what was it about that camp? Because I know the reputation of what that guy had as far as training. Uh, did you know what you were getting yourself into? Uh, was that a conscious choice? You said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, try and uh, really get with somebody who could teach me to do this. Definitely. Because, you know, watching the AWA, I knew of Brad's reputation. And when I heard that he had a camp, I, I jumped at the opportunity because I wanted to get trained by the best. And, and, and I knew it wasn't going to be easy because if, you know, and am even the amateur wrestling, as far as the conditioning and the training, that was mm. the most painful and hardest oh, training of any sport I've done. And I did quite a few different sports. So I knew it wasn't going to be easy, especially the first day of camp when I was in there. I mean, Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos were there the nasty boys were still there cause they'd gone through the session before me. Mm. And so they were still there living there, helping out. And they were in the ring 
wrestling and taking bumps and stuff. And I just could, you know, the first day I was just, it just blows you away. Yeah. So what was that camp like? Because it, it had a reputation for being one of the, the toughest. I mean, we hear about, uh, you know, Stu Hart and what he did to people, but, uh, this camp as far as, and, and I've talked to other athletes before and, and many MMA athletes who come from, uh, college programs, college wrestling programs. And they say, no matter what they've ever done, Conditioning wise, nothing compares to the pain and, and uh, the, these workouts that they went through. Was this somewhere along those lines? Tell us about what that camp was like. Oh, it, it was rough. I mean, it, he, Brad, Brad didn't want to waste his time with someone who really didn't want it. So he would weed out whoever didn't want it. And not, not vicious or mean. It yeah. was just hard training. Mm-hmm. And... He would also, I mean, he was one of the biggest shooters in the business. And he would also show you how submission holds felt. So you knew what a submission hold could do to you. And, I mean, it was very, uh, very educational. And, and mm-hmm. like I said, it wasn't easy. We would start out running, I don't know how far, and come back. We, we were, were not, we would not, and we're not allowed to get into the ring for the first few weeks. It was all uh, stuff on the amateur mats. Mm-hmm. And even a lot of the conditioning was just the amateur wrestling or rolling around on the mats. So it, it was, it was rough. I mean, but like I said, he weeded out who really didn't want it. Yeah. And I think, uh, you, when you talk about it, it was a very small class uh, that you had. It wasn't like you had, uh, you know, 15, 20 people, maybe it started out that way, but, uh, no, there was, there was four of us. Yeah, oh, oh yeah. Well that you talk about individual attention, <laughs> I guess it, yeah, but and but uh, I couldn't even tell you how many bumps we took because it would be one guy get in the middle. All right, feed for body, five body slams each. Then another guy get in the middle, five body slams each. Another guy get you know it it was and then we do the same thing with hip tosses, arm drags. I mean it was it was rough. You know it's interesting though that you come from a place like that and and somebody like uh, Reinigan who. Um, was a you said like one of the toughest shooters out there he, that's where he came from that's what uh but and yet um you talk all the time about how important it is not to hurt each other and that's that goes way back you talk old school because you got to keep working um how did he separate that uh to where you know like you said you, he showed you what a submission move could do to you but at the same time as they used to say you got to work like butter you're not supposed to feel it it's supposed to be so how did you get trained that way from somebody like that? Well, that's one thing. He really did emphasize safety and taking care of each other. Uh-huh. You know, especially if you're going to be doing it full time and working six days a week, you have to. And, you know, what we do is dangerous. Yeah. But uh, he would just, as far as educational, just let you know when you what a submission hold really can do to you. He wouldn't really crank on it as hard as he could or anything like that. He would just let you know and put a little pressure on it and go, all right, this is what this feels like. And then, so when you would put it on, you would know, you know, how much pressure, you know, to use. So you really wouldn't seriously hurt anybody because, yeah. you know, submission holds really can do some serious damage. But well, and you say, like you said, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. But like you said, he, he really emphasized safety and taking care of each other. Uh, one thing I've, I've often heard you mention is one of the most important things is, that you need to do and your advice you give to younger people. 
is that you got to sell. And and did someone who is a was a gifted Greco-Roman wrestler uh, teach you to do that? Um, actually, Brad, he very he really the first day of camp, he said, if you want to learn how to be a good worker, learn how to sell. Mm-hmm. That's one. Of, I'll, there's a, quite a few things he said the very first day of camp that I'll never forget, and that's one of them. And it makes sense. And one thing he really emphasized too was psychology throughout the whole camp. He emphasized psychology once we started doing matches and and uh, telling a story. Uh-huh. Um, but like the whole object of this business is to get the people emotionally involved, invested in your match, and in you. And the only way of doing that is by selling. And, you know, that's the biggest way. Like, I'll tell guys when I do seminars, I'll say, if you want to learn how to be a good worker, I'll tell them, watch stuff from the 70s and 80s. And they go, well, that's boring. I said, well, you know what? People Mm -hmm. believed it was real back then. And you know why? Because you had two guys in the ring selling their butts off for each other. Yeah. And and when you define that, it's not... Uh, as we say, it's not selling a move or how you t- how somebody did it necessarily. It's telling a story, uh, and I think that some people don't understand that. And I think you I think you just hit on it there because they said, "No, it was boring." Well, when somebody would hold an arm bar on some guy for you know a minute or whatever, and, and it, it, the story was being told, it, it, he didn't have to be tossing the guy all over the ring to do it. Right, and you know as you go through the match, you just continue the story. And a lot of times at the end of the match, it would all, you know, come together and make sense. Especially when a guy would say his, his arm was being worked on the whole match. Well, at the end of the match, he goes for his finisher and he can't because you've damaged his arm too. Right. He can't even yeah. hit his own finisher. So yeah. that, you know, there's a lot of different stories you can tell, but you know, you have to sell to get the people to actually, and there's a lot of guys who, uh, nowadays who think this is about going out and proving how tough we are. It's not. Yeah. And yeah. Brad said this the first day of camp. He says, if you do this for any significant amount of time, you will need surgeries because the human body wasn't made for this. Yeah. So it's, you know, you may as well sell and get some mileage out of it because every time you hit that mat, you're doing a little bit of irreparable damage to your body. Yeah. Though many have said you only have so many bumps in you. Uh, and eventually you run out of them and, uh, some, yep. some, it takes I a little longer than out. others. Yeah. 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 Throughout your career. So, uh, when you, when you get out of this camp, uh, how ready are you to actually become a professional wrestler and what were those first experiences like? Well, the one thing Brad taught was basic fundamentals and, and it was up to you on your own time to go and try the crazy stuff which is smart on his part, you know, liability wise. Right. But, uh, he really made sure that you had the basic fundamentals down. It was repetition over and over and over until everything became second nature. But I still didn't feel like I was ready because it was, it was three hours a night, four nights a week, three for three months. And I personally wanted to make sure I felt comfortable that I was ready. So, Mm -hmm. Brad would still let us come out even when he had the next session and stuff and work out. And I would go work out at Eddie's school too, a little bit. And I just kept training a little bit longer, a few months longer before I thought I was ready and felt confident. And what were those first gigs? What were the first jobs you actually had? 
my very first day I wrestled, it was for a, a TV taping for this. I think his name was Jim Cook. For It was called IWA. It was the independent. And it was a TV taping at an armory in New Ulm, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And I had three matches the first day I wrestled. The first match was a tag match against this team called the Terminators, a couple of big boys. And the second match was a six-man tag against Derek Dukes, Tom Zink and Steve Olsonowski. And then the third match was a singles match against Tom Burton, a guy I went through camp with. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, scared. I was nervous, scared, all the above. <laughs> so. Well, now you're a performer. It's not, you're just not just working out uh, and, and doing the repetition. Uh, when, when you look, how long did it take you before you felt some level of comfort uh, in this profession you had now chosen? Oh, it was probably a while because when I broke in the business, I was very, very shy. I wouldn't, I had a hard time. I wouldn't even look at the people in the crowd and I wish someone would have just grabbed me and shook me and woke me up and said, this is showbiz. You cannot be shy. You have to get the people involved in your match. So that, it took a while. Did you actually ever have to cut promos? Did they, I, I, I mean, there was TVs, uh, were you, no, I was just a, you know, squash, just a yeah. jobber. Yeah. And, you know, after, after that, I was doing, like Tom and I, we'd go get the ring, go set it up at the Rochester Civic Center, do a few squash matches, tear down the ring, bring it back. And then I did a few TVs for WWF back then, but TVs were like 32 or 34 squash matches in a row because they would get, you know, four weeks of TV in the can. So starting out it was just a lot of squash matches uh, well and but and you can learn a lot from them if you do if you get a chance to work with with good talent and uh, i know that uh in uh, i guess around 89 or so you you got an opportunity to work with the wwf at the time how did that opportunity come about and uh what did you learn from that experience i think they would give eddie eddie sharkey a call and have him bring some guys in for the squash matches so I, I he got me in on those and it taught me what a professional really was because my first match there was a tag match against big boss man and akeem when they were the twin towers yeah wow and, what a way to start yeah i and well <laughs> i couldn't believe how big these guys were because first oh, time God, i yeah. went in the locker room i found a place set my bag down and set was sitting there and Here's uh first guys I see is a uh, one man gang or Akeem mm-hmm. and he's wearing a Mickey Mouse shirt playing with a yo-yo. <laughs> yeah. And standing next to him was uh Rick Rude and Kurt Henning. And I just couldn't yeah. believe how tall gang was. Oh, yeah. And it was funny they're waiting for their turn to play with that yo-yo cuz back then there was no <laughs> internet, there were no cell phones. It was whatever you could find to entertain yeah. yourself for the no long games. days of TV. Yeah. Uh, and then in walked uh, Earthquake and Typhoon, and they were bigger. I couldn't believe how big yeah, these guys yeah. were. And then in walked Big John Studd, and he was bigger. And I'm just in awe. And then in walked Andre the Giant. And I'm just sitting there <laughs> thinking, I am in a room with the largest human beings yeah, on the yeah. planet. It was and you were. amazing. Yeah, yeah, and you were. I was just floored. I couldn't believe I was sitting there. Yeah. But that match with the twin towers 
they sh- talk about professionals. I didn't feel a thing and it looked like they were completely destroying me. Yeah. Now, granted, if I didn't sell, they probably would have destroyed me. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's but, what they did to those people. Uh, but, but you it, mentioned you know, being, it, yeah, go ahead. It just made me realize what, you know, um, Brad was talking about as far as taking care of each other and, and being safe because those guys were working full-time schedules. Yeah, and, and also they appreciated, they all at some point started where you were, uh, These all of these guys. And it uh, was always kind of amazing to me how some would forget. And I understood what those matches were for. I mean, when we would do for Superstars and Challenge, you know, we'd bring these guys in. And I don't know what you got paid. I mean, when they would bring these local guys in and they would uh, put them out there with a superstar who in many cases would just, destroy the guy and and it wasn't you know like you said it wasn't the experience like you had with Bubba and our, our big boss man and, and uh, one man gang um and I just never really understood that because you know I am a, I was a, certainly a, a total outsider of the business but the people I learned from like Gorilla Monsoon and Lord Alfred Hayes and you know this great respect for the business was I remember them telling me it's it's uh you take care of each other because these guys got to put food on the table for their family as well. And if you hurt them or they hurt you, you can't work and you're all, and everybody is on their own. You guys don't have, at that time, there were certainly no contracts. So, uh, I used to just not, I, just kind of look and wonder sometimes at these guys that would just really just beat the living shit out of these guys. And they would just limp back into the locker room and disappear where, but the other guys, like you said there, the ones that were successful, the, the the best superstars in the history of the WWE were people like Big Boss Man and One Man Gang and those who really respected the business and understood it and took care of people. Right. You know, I, and there was some that I worked with that were a little more stiff and a yeah. little more snug, but I guess I was fortunate that no one actually went out and tried to beat the crap out of me. Yeah. Well, and I, I know you've also talked about some of these other guys. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Boss Man and and, uh, and One Man Gang, and but uh, you also talk about Mang and, and Barbarian, who uh, we know re- the reputation of those two people, especially Mang um, Haku, as we knew him in the, the the WWE. But those guys could look like they just you know absolutely destroyed people, and certainly could have done it, but but weren't like that. And, and, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about that experience with those guys. And then also others in the business that, uh, were the same. Um, yeah, I worked with Ming and Barbarian and WCW and they were just like Bossman and Akeem. They were light as a feather and looked like they were destroying me. And, and, uh, you know, and they're two of the big, biggest badasses on the planet, but it's guys like that who really, it seems like, they don't think they have anything to prove. And, and, you know, they just showed me again, what professionals they really were and they were great at their craft. And I'm trying to think of some others that I've worked with, uh, Rick Martel when he was the model. Um, and in AWA, I worked with Larry Zabisco and Colonel De Beers. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, do you ever do you ever have a chance to work with Brett? Because Brett always prided himself in, in uh, never uh, ever hurting someone, you know, seriously to where they couldn't work. 
No, I never got a chance. Yeah. Yeah, but there were many, many, many of them along the way. And uh, really, I, I don't know if we, we talk about it enough about that part of the business because, uh, like I said, that was how you made your living. And if you were uh, unable to do that because someone didn't protect you, that was, uh, you know, a really sad part of the business that there were some people that were like that, but uh, there were like we just talked about some of these guys they they just uh, respected the business so much. Um, so the we talked about you working in the WWF at the time. Um, I don't know if it lasted very long, but was that an experience where you set, you know kind of left with you you saying one day I'm going to be back here uh, as one of these guys? No, because back then I was still small compared to everyone majority of people are you know still a bunch of big monsters yeah so and that was that was the size of the business then that was all about big oh men. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so i never really had any you know set any goals for getting there i guess at the time um it was i was just plugging away and i was really close friends with x or Sean at the time when he was a lightning kid and we would get together every day and watch all kinds of tapes or whatever we could find of, you know, Japan, Mexico, whatever. And we would just start implementing all those styles in our matches. And at the time I really wanted to try and get to Japan because I, when they started using smaller guys like Liger and having their junior uh, division, Mm -hmm. But uh, what, what so was going on with Sean's career at the time? Um, I think I guess he was just doing indies around the Midwest because we had the, a couple year feud. Even while I was doing the squash matches, we had a yeah. feud for a couple years around the whole Midwest up there. Well, was then, that G, uh, you talking about GWF? Well, and what that, happened was that, with that yeah. uh, Sharky and Dennis Carluzzo did a couple combined shows in Minneapolis. Uh-huh. and had uh, Sean work Sabu and I worked Candido and and Eddie Gilbert had been on the shows. And first, I think it was a winter over 90 and 91, Eddie brought me down to the USWA and did I, so I did the Memphis Territory over the winter. Then the next winter, Eddie called up and he asked me and Sean if we'd want to do our feud down in Global in Dallas there. Mm. So we did it. And that's how we got down there. Was Eddie Gilbert? Yeah, but before that, I mean, is the uh, you said you wanted to get to Japan, which which you did, uh, and so how did that opportunity come up, and and what did you learn from that first experience in Japan? Well, Bruce Kreitzman, the referee in Minneapolis, had been going to Japan and refing for this. I think it was the Lucha Company, UWF. Yeah. I think it was called UWF or UWA, maybe. I can't remember, but, uh, so he told Wally Yamaguchi about us. And so well, Wally came to the States and refed a match between Sean and I, and he mm-hmm. liked us. So they brought us over for that Lucha style company and tagged us together. And we worked against, uh, was Takayama and Hakiyoshi. Well, now they're, uh, Gato and Jato. Is that how you say their names now? Mm-hmm. But they were a tag team in that company then. And so they brought us over to feud with them. And it was a lucha style company, so it wasn't you know your typical new J- new Japan or all Japan or anything like that. It was more lucha, but so it, I just set 
small goals to achieve along the way in my career. I tried not to set anything too high that was unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And it's a very different uh, type of work over there, though. I mean, it, it, that uh, you know, it's it, you say, I guess they call it stiff. <laughs> Is that putting it mildly? Oh yeah. But <laughs> we were told because a lot of the Minnesota boys went over there. Yeah, yeah. A lot of their careers over there, like, uh, why am I brain farting his name? The big arm, he's a world arm wrestling champion, Scott Norton. Norton, yeah. Yeah, some of them guys. So we were always told, you know, when you get over there, lay it in. Otherwise, they won't respect you, and then they'll eat you alive. So (laughs) Sean and I, when we first got over there, we were just lighting everyone up. (laughs) And then I realized some of them, they didn't like working like that. So we lightened up with the guys who, you know, Likes working lighter, but you know you lay stuff, safe stuff in. Yeah. And what about working? The, what about the crowd? So too, that was another experience. Although I don't know how big a crowd you had been used to working before that, but it was it. Uh, they may have been larger, but they're a very different crowd as far as how they react to what's happening in the ring. Oh yeah, but we kind of knew from watching tapes. Uh-huh. But yeah, it, they were very quiet the whole time until they see something they like and then you you know they'd applaud and ooh you know whatever yeah, yeah. but when there's a big built up feud or a big angle boy they, it's just amazing after a near fall or something they start stomping on the floor and it's and while they're yelling and screaming it sounds like thunder roaring through the building and when yeah. the first time I was over there and I saw a match like that live I said Someday I'm going to have a match like that. Yeah. And the night I had that mask versus mask match against Grand Naniwa in Michinoku, it happened during that match. And that was one of those nights where I could not get to sleep till 5.30 in the morning. It really? was just an amazing experience. Well, and it still seems vivid to this day. So, so oh, yeah. I still get goosebumps thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, and so at this point, I, I don't know if when you come back, we're talking uh, early 90s, uh, uh, working with the USWA. Uh, do, are you starting to feel pretty confident in the ring? Are you, you feel like you're, uh, uh, I, I don't know, kind of getting to the point where there are other big opportunities you can see ahead? Not yet. When I was in the USWA, really? it, was, it was more of a learning experience for me uh-huh. and learning how to really work. And I would just still, you know, listen to the veteran and do whatever they said, you know, let them call it all out there. And back then, that's what you did. My first match down there, I worked Kenny Wayne from the Nightmares. Never met him before. And this down there, you had locker rooms on the opposite side of the building. Yeah. So you did everything was called out in the ring. So it was just more of a learning experience. And I, I so I just listened and did what I was told. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you mentioned the working with Sean, Sean Waltman, and you both credit each other for uh, really uh, tremendously helping your careers. And what was it about working with him that worked, that, that, uh, you know, worked so well? Um, he was willing to be creative and try new things. And it was at a time like, like he was smaller. I mean, he was taller, but he was, skinny then yeah we were two small guys and there was a lot of times back then you'd walk into a locker room at some indie show and all these big guys would look at you like what are you doing here like you didn't belong you know yeah 
And so there were people who didn't even want to work with us just because they thought we were too small to work with. So when Sean and I worked together, I mean, he was, we, we both wanted to go out and be creative and come up with new stuff and have fun. And, and at the same time, we were pretty much best friends. We'd get together and all the time and watch tapes, but we still had the people thinking we hated each other's guts. Yeah. So you know how to sell. I, I I saw Sean last year. I can't remember where, but I told him I said to this date, that time was some of my favorite work because yeah. of that. We had the people thinking we hated each other's guts. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's awesome that uh, that you guys have, have remained friends all these years, but also that uh, you believe each one uh, each one of you helped. Uh, pro, you know, promote the other to uh, the next level. Um, oh, definitely. Because at the time too, there were so many guys who were just happy with, you know, clotheslining, body slamming, yeah. hip tossing. And that was it. No one wanted to try anything new. Yeah. But, but also, you know, it was an era where, um, you know, I remember in the late eighties, late eighties with, with the WWF. And of course there were a lot of uh, huge human beings, uh, superstars there. But there was also a number of, uh, you know, not so uh, huge guys, uh, people like Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, the Rockers, and, um, you know, a, a, a bunch of others that, uh, you know, Brett was not a huge guy. And uh, what they could do in the ring, it was, it was really changing the business. And then also some great matches where you had, you could have a, a big guy working against another guy because they were just so skilled and you bought the fact that the, what they could do could take down a big guy. So it was, I, I just thought it was a great era in wrestling. And I, it sounds like, uh, you took full advantage. Well, I, <laughs> I, I realized I had to do what the big guys couldn't. So someone would want to hire me and bring me in. Yeah. Well, exactly. Uh, but there was pressure. I mean, they, it, I'm, I, it wasn't where, you know, a lot of the bodies we saw, Prior to that, you didn't even have to be cut in many cases, but you did in that period of time. Uh, that was when physiques were, no matter how big you were, and uh, a lot of a lot of them were doing. I guess we call it uh, juice or gas or whatever. Was there that pressure out there to do it, even for the small guys, that you had to at least have a physique that uh, you know did was cut? I guess we'd call it. Yeah, there was. Yeah. I, I guess I felt there was the pressure. So, you know, I, well, nobody I, realized I, at the time either what it could do, what it was doing, could do to your body. Right. Right. And there was a time where I, I said, all right, I'm going to do it and I'm going to get big. And mm -hmm. I did, uh, uh, some harsh stuff. I, and I, I didn't realize the one was so harsh, the Anadrol. And one time, one day I pissed blood and I said, all right, that's enough of that. <laughs> really that was and, it you know it wasn't well you know there's times over the years i would do like a something that was more of a healer and a tissue builder just to kind of hold my body together but uh i i realized not too many years later it didn't matter how big i got it wasn't going to help further my career any yeah well as i mentioned we we talked with the the warlord last week and um you know, there may have been 
you know, taller guys than him. Uh, but I don't think I ever remember anybody being more massive. I, I just remember looking at him and thinking, like, how much bigger can you get? And uh, right. he, he talked a little bit about that. And, you know, he was a soccer player when he was, was younger. And I just to imagine, I, you know, him bouncing around on a, on a soccer pitch would just doesn't seem like that could have ever happened. But, man, I mean, that it was and, – and it was, you know, and he hung with uh, – you know, uh, road warriors, hawk and animal. And these guys could bench press cars at the time. And it was more, oh, it, yeah. it was a group that just wanted to outdo each other. I don't even know if it was so much to, uh, you know, impress crowds, you know, would, would do no. you remember that era of like what was going on in the locker room? Oh, well, when I was in WCW and, and we do TVs down in Orlando Everyone would go to the gym. I couldn't believe these guys were warming up with three plates aside. It was crazy. That that was a warm up. It was amazing how much weight they were pushing. And I always would joke around and I'd always say, I don't think there's enough weight in this gym for uh, Warlord. (laughs) It was crazy. Or a lot of them even. Even, you know, like you said, Hawk and Animal, uh, the Steiners, Ming and Barbarian. It was crazy the weight these guys were pushing. Well, and, and, you know, you remember back in the day there when, you know, Mike would pick up these bodies and these guys that he was uh, going against who weighed at least, you know, what bottom side would 220 maybe. And he picked them up like a bag of sand, like a 50 pound bag of sand. I mean, there wouldn't be that, uh, uh, you know, it was just like one lift and the guy's over his head. And. You know, that isn't even weight, weight. You know what I'm saying? With a body moves right. different. And for him to yeah. do that, these guys, the, the strength was just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were, like I said, even behind the neck military presses, just, yeah. you know, four plates aside. It was crazy the amount of weight they were pushing. Yeah. But I think it was fortunate at the time that, that we did realize that the skill and people were very entertained by. Uh, what some of the the uh, smaller wrestlers, and that's not a you know a knock, but uh, they just weren't didn't get the genetics to be that big. But it really enhanced, I think, professional wrestling all the way around because you did have your monsters, and then you had the the high flyers, and you had the your, your skilled uh, athletes. Which I think I thought I really feel that you kind of fell in between that. You were uh, skilled, and then uh, uh, you know you could do the high flying moves as well. Um, what are some of your uh, most vivid memories, though, of some of those matches? Did you did you like working, say, with uh, other high flying tag teams or other singles, or did you like going up against some of these bigger uh, monsters? It just depended on who it was that I was working with, as far as um, how can I put this? How how cooperative they would be or if, if they wanted to go out. <laughs> yeah. Cause, I guess it was up to, to them, right? Fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because some people are fun to work with and some aren't. And yeah. one thing Brad told me too, he says the secret to having a great match is if you and the guy you're working with try to make each other look like a million bucks. And there's been a lot of times over the years I'm working with someone that all they care about is getting their stuff in. So mm. all they care about is themselves and then it's no fun. And chances are the match is going to suck because all they care about is themselves. Yeah. So there's a lot of times where it's difficult too, in that perspective. So it just depended on 
who the person it could have been a big guy it could be a little guy it it could be you know different maybe they weren't all that great technically sound but if they wanted to go out there have and have fun then it was great yeah well and you know a big opportunity came for you um in the mid 90s there at a time when when wcw was uh really starting to rise and uh had some of the you know biggest names in professional wrestling there had come from the WWE, uh, but you don't you don't speak of that experience as something that you were really uh, fond of that period of time, and and why not? And uh, first, tell us how it came about, and then why it wasn't it a, a good experience? Um, different reasons. I mean, I'm thankful for it. It was the first time I got signed with a major company, but uh, I guess it was the first time I had encountered politics in the business. Really? On, on a real nauseating level. And uh, I understood my spot there. I was just like, I wouldn't even say a fish. I was a guppy <laughs> in the yeah. ocean, uh, you know, and cause they had all the big guns there, you know, they had, they had the NWO and the whole nine yards. So I understood my spot there, but it just, and it made, and at that time, you soon realized, I mean, there was days where they wouldn't have the board up with the matches on it until 10 minutes before going live, mm. live worldwide TV. Why would you not have that up earlier? And it was just, it was just very unprofessional. I thought. Mm. And well, it didn't give you much preparation time either. <laughs> that too. How are you supposed to go yeah. out there and, and, give everyone a good match or whatever when yeah. you don't even know what segment you're in or who you're wrestling and how much time you have. And, you know, so it, it made it very difficult and unpleasant at times. And you mentioned the, the politics. Uh, and of course we have discussed it many times, but from your viewpoint, and as you said, as a guppy, uh, what was, what was going on in that locker room and backstage? Well, for the most, you know, uh, it's hard to say, you know, it was very cliquish. Yeah. Um, you know, and then they would, certain superstars would always show up late. They'd have a big meeting rebuking everybody, everybody show up on time. Well, you know, the same superstars would still show up late. Nothing would be done. It's like, why don't you pull them aside and let them know, you know? Yeah. But, uh, it was just stuff like that. It just seemed very, um. I, I, I don't know. It, 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 all right. Here's how it felt. It felt like no one cared. They were just there to get money out of Turner's pockets. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like no one cared. And so how did it end up being as successful as it was? We talked, we, we know all about the 83 weeks. Uh, how did they pull that off? then? <laughs> because, you know, the more you hear about it, like, man, how, uh, was it all NWO? I mean, what was it one great idea? Boy, I could get myself in some big trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You don't have to. Well, no, I, I mean, from what, here's my observation. WCW yeah. had Scott Hall, you know, yes. and what they have, he was what the diamond stud or what was he then? Well, I you had, uh, DDP, of course, was there, and uh, 
that was no i mean this is before the whole end oh of yeah 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 right okay yeah yeah and then they had kevin nash and they had him as what oz and vinnie vegas and you know it's like wcw couldn't figure out what to do with these guys so they went to vince and vince turned him into diesel and razor ramon and turned him into huge superstars yeah and then wcw just threw more money at them to bring them back and after they were already made into big superstars and so i think that it was just buying back the talent after they were turned into huge worldwide superstars yeah, well, you know, and and the thing is, and, and it's dis, it's discussed as ad nauseum. I mean, it's uh, yeah, everyone trying to figure out why, but it happened. I mean, it was it was an incredible period in the history of professional wrestling. It changed it forever. In many cases, I think for the good, uh, because it raised uh, the bar way up for uh, the WWE. It uh, it helped. It benefited the wrestlers in in the the point where they were. You know their their income levels were raised dramatically, and who had ever heard of guaranteed contracts before that? So, right. um, and right. plus, you know, it, they it's the first time Hogan turned heel too, and that was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are so, even showering the ring with debris, so it was yeah. good heat. Yeah, and, and so for uh, many of the fortunate that were uh, among that elite, uh, did tremendously well. Uh, you know more than he could have, they could have ever imagined in careers. But there were also right. other people that weren't in that league. They were not uh, given that opportunity or for, for whatever reason. And it, it probably was very difficult to be, uh, you know, there looking up at all what was happening. Well, it just gets frustrating when the company lets you know you're not important. You know, not straight to your faith, but in their actions. Yeah, well, it uh, you know that's the, the, the you know that you can go on. We could probably name I don't know how many, but where you had people that had it all, but it just never happened. It, whether whether they didn't get the right gimmick or the right opportunity, or I mean, the list goes on and on. Injuries, um, and you they you were laced with them throughout your career. I don't know if th at this point uh, were they taking their toll uh, on your body. Because uh, I don't know, uh, uh, one of the reasons that you left there in the end was because of an injury, right? No, they they let me go. Well, I, when I first was going there, it was on a nightly deal, and I ended up messing my arm up pretty good. So I was home, I think, for nine weeks. Mm -hmm. And luckily, when I was ready to come back, they signed me to a year deal. And at the end of the year deal, they just decided to let me go. Yeah. Well, but, you know, uh, come to think of it, I did have a broken foot near the end. There. Yeah, boy. So uh, when the chance to work for ECW came along, and a lot of people talk about what a great opportunity that was and a great atmosphere, was it like that for you? In ECW, it was, yeah, yeah. it was awesome. Yeah, when, it, was, so, it was more like a team effort. Everyone would cheer each other on. I mean, there was everyone would watch each other's matches on a monitor in the back. And there are a lot of times people would come back from a great match. Everyone would give them a standing ovation. All the boys. What was different? So what was, was different about it? That, that, uh, that atmosphere of was, was it a lot of people who kind of had been down the same road that you had been on and here they had an opportunity to work with 
uh, you know, people that were management and, uh, you know, uh, people like, uh, Heyman and, and, uh, Cornette and, and were, were these people that, uh, you know, helped you and, and was it that kind of atmosphere with the other uh, wrestlers that were there as well? Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I'll always give him credit for is, is new Jack. And this is, uh, Paulie was having me do a promo and I was just having a hard time with it as I wasn't really, uh, taking promos very seriously then. And after I cut it once, Polly says, I can't remember. He says, all right, we'll, we'll stick with that one. But, uh, new Jack says, I don't believe you. <laughs> I said, what? He says, I don't believe a word you said. And he explained to me that you have to make the people believe what you're saying. And I wish someone would have told me that earlier in my career, but I thought that was so cool of New Jack just to, he was the first person to actually say something like that and actually try and help me with my promos. Yeah. But that's, and, I mean, it was like a team effort there. Everyone was helping each other out and wanting, and we were trying to build something. Well, and, and you hear people like, you know, Tommy Dreamer was severely depressed when that went down, uh, when, you know, it didn't, didn't, didn't succeed. Uh, was it that great of a place to, to be a part of? And, and, uh, as far as, because, you know, we talk about how the creative, uh, uh, you need that these guys, you're, you're performers. And if you're not given that opportunity to grow and be creative, then, uh, you get pretty complacent and that's not good. So was it really that kind of atmosphere there? Oh yeah. You had total freedom in the ring. And that really? made it more fun. Like, uh, you know, there wasn't all that much. I don't know. If, I guess there was times, there was one time I'll never forget in WCW, I came back from a match and I just got reamed right at grill position. And it really wasn't my fault because no one told me what they wanted. Uh-huh. And, and so I, <laughs> I stood up for myself. But uh, in ECW, you had a lot of freedom. You can go, and everyone, you know, everyone wanted to go out there and just bust their butt and give the best they could. So, did, was was Paul uh, Heyman a, a, an influence on you? What what uh, was your experience like with him? Um, Paul, yeah, I, I he, uh, I just would watch him and he was just so great at using people to their strengths and hiding their weaknesses. And mm-hmm. it was just amazing to see how he would book people and, and, and how he would use them and then how he would book the programs and stuff. It, it was, it was pretty much ingenious. And any others that, that were really a, a big influence on you there? Besides you mentioned, you mentioned new Jack, but other ones that uh, other people that. Um, I get, you know, there's guys I really enjoy, enjoyed working with there. Like I, I really loved uh, working with Lance Storm and just incredible Chris Candido, of course, RVD. Um, I mean, the whole crew was great. Uh, everyone was fun to work with there. Yeah. And did that, do you think that that, op, that uh, experience is what um, got you to the WWE again? Well, actually, I had a tryout match with them prior to going to ECW. I had a tryout uh-huh. match with Taka 
Michinoku. Yeah. But JR told me at the time, he said, well, we're just trying to get this light heavyweight thing off the ground, so we can't promise you anything right now. And I understood that. Well, I think it was a couple of weeks after I started with ECW, uh, someone called me up and says, you're on Raw tonight. I said, I can't be. I haven't done anything with them. And they said, well, you're in the brackets for a light heavyweight tournament. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, really? They didn't even call me and ask me. <laughs> so I had to, I called Polly and asked them what I should do and whatever, because I already committed to ECW. Yeah. And um, he, I said, well, yeah, they want me to just, I can't remember who I talked to. It may have been Cornette. I'm not sure. Yeah but they wanted me to just work the first round and that was it. And I told Paul, he says, don't do it unless you're in the, unless he said, I said, I don't want to do it unless I'm going up against Taka in the finals. He says, don't do it unless they put you over. I'm like, yeah, no, I was, so I, I told him really, it it all came down to, I already committed to ECW. And so I didn't do it. And after the tournament, JR called me and asked what happened. And I told him, I said, well, you told me, you know, at the time you couldn't promise me anything. And I already committed to ECW and JR understood and he yeah. told me then, too, he said, uh, well, when you're done with ECW, I just want to let you know you have an open door here. And so when ECW called it, I gave JR a call, and he brought me on board. And, and what was it like there at the time? I, I, uh, you know, we're talking 2001. Uh, what, was, what was the WWE like at that point? We'd kind of we'd seen the, the, the crust with the Attitude Era. Uh, what was happening there when you arrived? Well, for me, it was kind of bad timing because mm-hmm. it wasn't very long after I got there and they bought WCW. So now they mm-hmm. had twice as many guys as they needed. And then a lot of those guys were already big built up superstars. So I knew I was just a small fish in a big pond again. Mm-hmm. So I just, and you know, and it was very, if you let it, it was very stressful because majority of the guys are walking around on eggshells, afraid of losing their job. And I wasn't going to let it bother me. And I just, uh, you know, just tried to stay, no matter what I was going through, I always still tried to make it fun. Mm -hmm. Even if the politics were miserable, I still tried to make sure I was having fun when I'd get in the ring and, and and I'd hang out with guys who were fun on the road. But, uh, so I was I didn't want to try and let it stress me. Yeah, and then and that uh, is a really it, uh, it's a tough place to be when uh, in the WWE because we talk about the limited number of uh, of people they have on the roster there, and you're just trying to get some time out there so that you can stick around. Uh, right. I mean, what is what is the stress level uh, when you're you know, just, you're just trying to make it, you're trying to stay, stay there. Uh, it's got to make it very difficult to have that fun, to enjoy it. Yeah. And, uh, shortly after I, you know, right away they put the belt on me and said, you're going to be a heel, which confused me. I thought, well, I've been a face most of my career while I was my heel with no rhyme or reason. Yeah. And, uh, so it, it made it challenging. And then I dropped the belt to uh, Jeff Hardy. And then after that, they just had me doing time filler matches for their little weekend shows, Jacked and Metal or whatever they were called. And then after that, I wasn't doing any of those. I was just doing dark matches with guys getting tryouts. And I knew this isn't good. Yeah. And about six months in, I got hurt in one of those tryout matches. 
needed knee surgery and three months after my knee surgery I got released so man are you thinking at this point yeah yeah but are, are you thinking at this point I mean you're and you can you kept working but uh already at this point in your career 2002 uh, your body has taken a big toll. What, what, what kind of shape are you in? Or, and did you do it, something that uh, saved you, or, or did you just keep pounding away? I guess I always trained hard, uh-huh. and I realized uh, I started training more for endurance so my body could absorb all this punishment. But, uh, yeah, there, you know, lower back was, <laughs> was hurting at times, and and uh you know had the knee surgery and stuff but i was still able to keep plugging away yeah i mean tna for a while and uh uh, was that organization a great experience for you as for those five years that you spent there at first at first it was until jerry left and um the it started not to become fun again. It was like all kinds of politics started kicking in again. And, and finally, I think after, and I got hurt and they made me an agent for a little bit and then started wrestling again. But after five years, I said it was was time to go. I wasn't happy. And if I'm not, you know, if it's not fun, why bother? So I asked for my release. Well, you, uh, you know, as I said at the top of this conversation, I don't know if uh, we've we've had anybody, and we've had <laughs> over uh, well over a hundred uh, episodes of this uh, of somebody who's worked for more different organizations. I mean, it's just go. I don't know if there's one you missed. Uh, what what kept you going? I mean, did, and we're talking almost you know into three decades that you were still heading in the ring. Uh, why? I love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> once once you get bit, it, you're yeah. screwed. Once it gets in your blood, you're screwed. It, you're done. And the first time at TNA is the first time I met uh, Roddy Piper. And I ran into him at TGI Fridays. And I sat next to him and uh, was talking to him a little bit. And I told him, I said, uh, I said this wrestling thing's real love-hate relationship. I said, sometimes I hate the fact that I love it so much. And yeah. he, says, that's a great, he said, that's a great way of putting it. But because, uh, you know, there's times where it gets very frustrating, but then, you know, I've always tried to make decisions to make it fun again. And I always, and that's what I tell the guys when I do seminars, always make sure you're having a good time because, you know, otherwise you're destroying your body. <laughs> Why are you out there destroying your body then? Unless you're at, you're enjoying what you're doing. Yeah. And I tell you, it's, it's just amazing. You, I mean, you look at your, your, your the stops along the way. Uh, and of course, not, not even including all the different or, uh, outfits you worked for in Japan, but you know, WCW, ECW, uh, WWF, WWE, uh, all you know, uh, TNA, and Ring of Honor, and uh, it, it's it's really it's just it's just incredible all the, uh, the different places. I mean, I guess you know, I mean, everybody's a journeyman, but man, you're the journeyman's journeyman. I think is. <laughs> I, yeah, would describe. I don't people realize uh, before I left uh, Memphis, Cornette called me and asked me if I'd do his, uh, I'd, I'd worked his first TV taping for Smoky Mountain. I worked Killer Kyle in a, a yeah. squash match. And then uh, when I was in Memphis, actually, we did a couple combined shows with World Class in Dallas. Uh-huh. So I've worked for uh, 
quite a few of them. Yeah, you have. And uh, and you mentioned that Smoky <laughs> Mountain. That's another one we forgot to talk about because that was also uh, known to be a, a great a great place for uh, wrestlers to I, go I, and be creative and develop. I just did their first TV because I, I actually left. Oh, that was when I was in Global. I left Global <laughs> because right before I went to Global, I had come back too soon from a broken ankle. So the whole time in Global, my ankle was bothering me pretty bad. Yeah. And right before I left is when Cornette called me and asked me if I'd do his smoky TV. So, uh, and and any uh, was uh, did you work with Jim a lot along the way, or uh, I don't know if he helped you along the way. I mean, a lot of people talk about uh, how he helped them. No, I really didn't get a chance. Yeah, I didn't really get a chance to work with him a lot. And Ben Desir. Yeah. I know the first time I encountered him was in the USWA when they brought in the fabulous ones and Cody Michaels and I worked them in a tag and I, I had my, my first mark out moment and I begged Jim to hit me with the tennis racket. (laughs) (laughs) So I got walloped. Did he? Oh, good. Yeah. I want to make sure he, uh, he probably enjoyed doing it. (laughs) Nah, he took care of me. He didn't try and kill me, but no. Take you out. Uh, Before we wrap up uh, here, uh, Jerry, I wanted to talk to you about, now, of course, you got this new uh, adventure you're involved in with AEW, and we've uh, kind of seen it take the independent world by storm with Cody and the Young Bucks. Uh, you, first, your thought on on uh, where they're going, and, uh, and you know, do you see it really uh, having a great impact in the world of professional wrestling? Is it changing? What are your thoughts on that? I think it already first? has. Yeah? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think no. it already has an impact. Yeah. Because, um, first of all, you, all of a sudden you heard all kinds of guys with the Fed asking for their releases. Mm-hmm. And, and plus, this is the first time since WWE bought WCW where the boys have bargaining leverage as far as contracts and their jobs. So competition's good for business. Oh, yeah. yeah it but is. Uh, I can't. I can't see this not working because really? I mean, yeah. behind the scenes, it's, it's a great atmosphere. It's like a team effort. Everyone's mm-hmm. rooting for each other. Everyone and, and they're letting the, the boys go out and have creative, uh, creative freedom, mm-hmm. you know, to a certain extent, but let them go out and do what they do instead of tying their hands behind their back, you know, but, uh, so they're letting the boys go out and do what they do. And what really helps is uh, the owner loves wrestling. Yeah. And yeah, that's a big really plus does. right there. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, and credit to Cody and, and the Young Bucks and, uh, you know, a bunch of the other people involved there that they have uh, created this world now in, for, in professional wrestling where, uh, these guys can make really good livings and, uh, uh, you know, through merchandise and, uh, you know, these other social media platforms and all these different revenue streams where they have options now. It isn't just, I just hope one day I make it to the WWE. And uh, right. I think that that is what is just huge about it because they can actually think about it and make choices that they think are really going to be good for their careers. Oh, yeah. They're very they're they're very smart and they're very creative especially oh, yeah. with the yeah. social media and the marketing and yeah. it's, uh, it's amazing what they're doing with all this 
even their little vignettes and stuff with the with the like the road to fight for the fallen and stuff. It's just so creative yeah. and entertaining. Yeah, it is. It's just fun to watch. And uh, you know, I've had uh, the great fortune that I've been able. I've been involved in the last uh, two star casts, and so I've kind of been backstage in this scene and just taking it in from my viewpoint of my involvement in the '80s there. And it just remind, reminds me a lot of that that atmosphere where, uh, you know, the the uh, wrestlers were allowed to really develop their characters. They they uh, they could, you know, had a lot of creativeness uh, to be were able to be creative when it came to cutting their promos. You didn't have somebody handing you a piece of paper. Uh, you know, they might have a storyline they guided you along on, but when you went into that room or when you even your matches, uh, it was a creative effort. And so I, I think that that is why that product right now is, is so hot. Right. And one thing I, I think that's different, too, is they're looking around the entire world for great independent talent that they see something in. Mm-hmm. And they're giving them a chance and they're creating some of their own stars. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Because, you know, like with WCW, we saw these already big superstars just go to another place. Uh, these guys they've got coming up, uh, you know, not that they didn't have huge followings before, but wait and see. I mean, if, when, with, with the TNT and uh, television, you've got people that are just going to uh, really explode on the scene and they're going to become their own stars. And I think that's a really good point you just made. And, and, and I'm sure you could name a few already that are, that are uh, you know, ones to watch. Oh yeah, that Adam Adam Cole and MJF. MJF's yeah. an amazing heel. Oh yeah, he's what he's such a great heel. <laughs> he's gonna be. It, I mean, not it, Adam Cole. I'm sorry, Adam Page. Yeah, Adam One Page, right? But also, yeah, you said Adam uh, Page. He's he's really gonna be something. And the other guys too, like that Scorpio. Um, the Scorpio Sky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a great lineup, and folks. Uh, the the uh, what I'm interested to see is that you know once you start the television uh, week after week that is that that's when it gets really tough but I really think that these guys uh, have what it takes and I can't wait to see what happens. Oh, I, I, when I go and get to the show, I'm just ex- as excited as the guys are that are yeah. that get to get in there and wrestle. I'm still I'm just as excited. It's just it's great to be a a part of something right from the ground level and try and help build something. And I'm, I was just so flattered and honored that they wanted me to be on board. Yeah. And with that, tell us about your involvement. How did you, uh, how did you come in and, and uh, what are you doing with them? Um, well, they're calling us coaches, but you know, we're kind of the same thing as like a road agent or basically you get uh, told which segment, that you're going to produce. And so you're almost kind of like a TV producer too, because you're producing a segment. Yeah. So that's fun. Can't wait to see. Well, Jerry, this has uh, really been enjoyable. I've loved uh, chatting with you. How can folks get in touch with you? Do you have, uh, uh, I know you, that you, you talk about how you are so far behind in technology, but do you have an email or a, a Twitter account that they can uh, reach out to you? Yeah, I always swore I'd never get on social media until Mike Burkhart <laughs> and I started that front row material podcast. And they said, "Now you got to get a Twitter so you can plug yep. the podcast." Yep. So I'm at it's Jerry Lynn. At Jerry Lynn, that's pretty easy. 
No, uh, it's Jerry Lynn. Oh, it's Jerry Lynn. Okay. Yeah. Folks, yeah, you hear it's that? Jerry Lynn. Okay. <laughs> All right, Jerry. Well, I hope I see you down the road, and uh, best of luck with everything with AEW. I think it's uh, it's awesome that uh, that you're involved with it, and I can tell folks are excited that you're you're doing it. I read a couple of articles uh, about the reaction to uh, you being in, involved in, in all your experience, and I think you're going to help create some of these stars. I hope so. <laughs> all right, my friend. I uh, I hope we chat soon. Thanks again for coming on Primetime. All right. Thank you very much for having me.